This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 19th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Marco Rubio nailed it. No, no, he didn't nail a reporter's question. He didn't nail a policy position. He nailed a little kid in the head with a football. Have you heard the tape? There's some laughter there, but... Brady Dill, the four-year-old who caught a football with his face, wasn't laughing. He was engaging in some corn-fed tough talk. Hey, Rubio, do you get back to Iowa? I'll be ready for you, Rubio. That is a future former Hawkeye right there. But Marco Rubio has a long and storied history, no, not of braining youngsters with rifle-like precision, a long association with football. In what must be the most cautiously labeled headline of this or any other election season, the Washington Post four months ago told us, Marco Rubio likely is the biggest Miami Dolphins fan ever to run for president. I like the likely there. Sure, I mean, hedge your bets. You don't know what Grover Cleveland thought about the Miami Dolphins. Wasn't Martin Van Buren ever spotted wearing a throwback Merino jersey? Anyway, here's the uh, anecdote inside the article. Rubio talking. I'll never forget when I was a boy and the doctor told me I had to wear leg braces to correct knee problems, and I often refused to put them on. But every day when I refused, the phone would ring, and to my great surprise, on the other end would be Don Shula, head coach of the Miami Dolphins. If you want to play for me one day, he would say, you'd better put on those braces. It didn't occur to me until years later that unlike Coach Shula, the man on the phone had a Cuban accent and sounded suspiciously like my dad. I mean, that anecdote really humanizes Rubio. Maybe it humanizes him too much. I mean, this is kind of mean to say about a kid, but it's okay because that kid grew up to be Marco Rubio, who's okay, but... Doesn't it make Marco Rubio sound a little like an idiot? Do we want a president who is kind of doltish and got fooled into thinking there was a Cuban dad sounding like Don Shula? Do we want his hand on the button? You know, Lindsey Graham always says any one of these Republicans could negotiate a better deal with Iran than Obama. But maybe I start saying, well, maybe except for Rubio, this guy's easily fooled or at least shows a history of that. But a susceptibility to terrible Don Shula impressions is not 
Rubio's even biggest credential as a Dolphin fan. A couple days ago, I was reading the Wall Street Journal. The article was headlined, Wall Street Wives Lend a Hand to Republicans Cruz and Christie. And it was about how Mary Pat Christie and Heidi Cruz work or worked on Wall Street. And it details some of the other ties that other candidates have to Wall Street, like Kasich and Jeb worked on Wall Street, worked for Wall Street firms. Then there was this paragraph listing a few political spouses. All right. Among Democrats, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley Ali's wife, Katie, is a Baltimore City District Court judge. And former President Bill Clinton could become the nation's first husband. Among Republicans, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal's wife is a chemical engineer. While Florida Senator Marco Rubio's wife is a former Miami Dolphins cheerleader. Whoa, 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 whoa. So, so we got, they're listing the spouses, judge, engineer, president of the United States, cheerleader. Now, I know you can only buy one of those professions in Barbie form, and it ain't chemical engineer, but Marco Rubio married a Miami Dolphins cheerleader? Indeed, Marco Rubio did. I just got to say this. Marrying a cheerleader does show commitment to the team, but if he really wants to impress me as a real Dolphins fan, I say Marco Rubio has to marry T.D., the seven-foot dolphin mascot who gallivants across the stadium. Sure, it would confirm Rick Santorum's worst fears, but I think the move would get the Washington Post to amend their headline from likely to clearly biggest Dolphins fan ever to run for president. On the show today, as a public service, I take on public service announcements. But first, Jimmy Pardo talks comedy, his Never Not Funny podcast, and a new game show he's doing with more turns than a bird song. Jimmy Pardo pretty much invented comedy podcasting in a way. He's also the host of the Science Channel's new brain teaser e-game show, Race to Escape. He cannot escape my clutches for the next few minutes. Hello, Jimmy. Hey, how are you? I'm well. So we're going to record for about two and a half hours, and the first 10 minutes will be free, and the rest will charge okay, premium Okay, here listeners. we go. So what you're doing is you're mocking my business model <laughs> no. from 2008 to 2014. So what happened? Because now now I, I used to tune in, and I like those 10 minutes. Well, it was like, 30. We gave you 30. You, it was a lot. It was but good. It, but it, it, it flew by. You thought it was, it was a, 10. It was a weird teaser. You know what? You're right. It was yeah. it was a little too much. <laughs> and it kept getting longer. I think it was starting out to be like 20 minutes. And then we would give you 30 because yeah. uh, you had to find a cutoff point. But it was like a pusher, basically, you know, for, uh, at the schoolyard. We're going to give you a little taste of Never Not yeah. Funny. And, but if you want it, uh, and we we're always gonna, cut it off. We're going to well, I want to hear the, the end funny. of that story. Exactly. Yeah. And if people don't listen, it's such a funny show. Thank it's, you. It really is two hours. You get top-name comedians because you've been doing stand-up for how long? I've been doing it for a long time, yeah. since the 80s. And and you just riff on things, and it's real improvisational. But why did the model change? Because you were one of the few stand-ups. A lot of them charge for archives, but you were one of the few podcasts that charged for the whole show. So why Wait, did it change? You know what happened? Well, for, it, w- w- the reason we went to it, w- the charge was in 2008, and the the podcast boom hadn't yeah. happened yet. Yeah. Certainly not the comedy podcast boom. So I was kind of this guy. I had a really great, big, loyal audience. But I still kind of felt like, why am I doing this? I kind of felt like a guy with a cable access show, like just this loser that's talking in his dining room. And then it was growing. I, 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 I'm going to contradict myself, but it felt like it was going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I felt like podcasting was going nowhere. So I said, you know what? We have this really loyal fan base. Let's not, not to sound like an a-hole, but let's 
let's see if we can. I'm a professional. Let's see if I can make money doing it. It is called show business. It is, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but you still, you, you know, the internet's supposed to be all isn't be free. It, but isn't it a weird thing about podcasting? You have to apologize for doing what, like, everyone for, in show business does. everybody else yeah. in show business does. Exactly. So, so we went to that pay model, and a lot of people stayed with us, and a lot of people told us to go F ourselves, right. you know? And then we did that for six years. We did the pay model, and it worked wonderfully. And then the pod, the comedy podcast boom came, and it came strong. And before you know it, Never Not Funny, which was always at number one or two with The Onion on yeah. iTunes, yeah. Uh, started going to like 78 and down and down. It was like we were getting lost. And then Airwolf and other networks came to us and said, do you want to be part of our network? And we, and we turned them down for a couple of years. And then finally, we just like, you know what? We need to be part of it. We need to do that. We need to go free again. Right. And let's roll the dice and see if we can sell a second episode every week in addition to doing this free thing and, and advertising. And knock on wood, like... It went as f- the one thing in my life, other than my beautiful son and my wife, that went perfect. Yeah. So I'm ecstatic that Never Not Funny is the success it is. So what you're saying is that the amount of money you get from advertising is equaling or uh, exceeding- well, the amount of money with advertising and that second the dual model. players club. Yeah. You know uh, where they get a second episode and video each week. But to me, this and- is a referendum. I mean, I guess you could say that I'm speaking out of self interest because I'm a podcaster for a living, but to me, this is a referendum on podcasting as a viable business model. Not that I didn't need other evidence, but yours shows that. It did, and, and, and we did ours differently. Like you said, we were, you know, we tried the advertising with, you know, Adam and Eve and, and, and that <laughs> stuff early on, and which was fine. Yeah. And we did okay with it, but I'm still traveling three weeks out of the year, or out of the month, rather. How can we stay home with my new son and make money? And so we went to that subscription model. And again, it worked. And then going to Airwolf and being part of that and having both has really worked. So with comedians who have a podcast, I think a lot of the business model is even if the podcast breaks even, instead of playing 200 seat clubs or rooms, now I'll be playing 400. Yeah. Like that. I, so did that happen to you? Well, did it happened your to, audience uh, increase? Uh, it did. And, and, uh, and the big difference for me is... And I don't know if I doubled that my audience is, you know, they're spread out over four shows. So there's probably an extra 50 at each one. Yeah. And uh, which is the 200 you spoke of. But they're there and they weren't there seven years ago. And so people that now dig what I do in podcasts and they come out and support the live shows. And so, like, I know they're going to stick with me because they listen for two hours a week. They're going to stick with me if I'm finding a new premise on stage or I'm, I'm experimenting or whatever. Yeah. I think all podcast fans, but specifically, I'm, you know, I only know Never Not Funny fans, really. They're the, they're the greatest fans of the world. Oh, and and they, are, loyal. they are so loyal. Yeah. In fact, a kid today just wrote a nice blog entry about, you know, he spent more time with me than he has with anybody else for the past seven years. That's why we don't do this on this show. We don't have a premium thing, but the shows that do, I guess an outsider could see it as mercenary, but the people who sign up appreciate they it. They do. They don't feel like they're exploited. No, yeah, and, but yeah. they did. When we first went to that pay model, boy, do we, we heard it. We heard, yeah. how dare you charge me? <laughs> good luck, good luck. You guys are dead. Good luck in the future. And then it's like, you know what? I mean, and, and we saw some blowback and, and we saw some numbers drop off, but I'd rather have that core audience that... You know, you know, I'd rather be the Andy Kaufman. I'm certainly not comparing myself to Andy Kaufman, but I'd rather be that of comedy than, you know, the the guy that's making everybody happy. <laughs> Somehow I've avoided this place. I don't know what that whistle is. I don't like it. <laughs> Nothing in my act requires whistling. I can guarantee that. Nothing in my show. You laugh or don't laugh. Those are your choices. <laughs> I prefer you sit there quietly than go into a hillbilly whistle. Oh, what did you think you were watching? (laughs) 
I'm going to whistle right now. Well, well, really? Why are you going to whistle? I'm enjoying myself. And I can't express myself like others, laughing and, and smiling. So I'm going to go hillbilly. I went through my angry, kind of a Dennis Leary angry guy. A lot of comedians are a screamer for a little while. And I went through that. Yeah, and, yeah. But I, it was in the mid-90s. I was going through a horrible breakup. And so I had this anger in me that I was able to bring on stage and just was yelling at the audience with no humor. <laughs> just yelling at <laughs> That's them. That's enjoyable. And, right? That'd be a good two and a half hour podcast. What a horrible. <laughs> that would be just horrible. But I remember thinking, that, you know, I went through my the audience's dumb phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't think, and, I, and I, I know I had a lot of punchlines that ended with, I got two words for you. Goodbye. <laughs> like that crap. <laughs> what an A. And then when they got mad, it was their fault. They didn't Still get the art. They, they didn't get my art. They don't, they don't get me, man. Really? They don't get you just yelling at them? <laughs> I needed that to get to where I am now, to where, you know, now when I yell on stage, it's with a wink. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I but it got me, it, it brought that freedom to be who I am today on stage. So I don't regret those years, but I think in, in the long run, they helped me get to be a better comic. Do you see your place as part of whatever's called the alternative scene? Because it means a lot of things. And I know your producer, Matt Belknap, started the board, yeah. a special thing, and that's kind of the Reddit for alt comedy. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So do you see yourself as part of that? I was, you know what's interesting? There's a few of us, me, Todd Glass. Yeah. Boy, there was always a third that I would throw in that we were able to straddle both worlds. Like, I could easily... I think Dana Gould was like that a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's like a little little bit older. More alt. Yeah. You know, like, Todd or I could do a set at the Improv. Maria Bamford. Yeah. We could do a spot at the uh, uh, Jen Kirkman. The, uh, at the improv and then race over to the UCB and vice versa and have those two completely different worlds. You know, like I can go on the road and work any comedy club and and get big laughs yep. and then still go to the little coffee house and get the same big laugh. So I was lucky that I was able to straddle both of those worlds. A lot of guys can't. And then they, of course, think everybody on the road's an idiot. You know, yeah. road they don't get my stupid. Joke. They don't get my references. No, they will. That's it. Well, that's because you're too, you're playing to the choir too much. To me, there's an energy about the alt comedian maybe mm-hmm. it's a stereotype it's a little mopey a little what else let me check my notes <laughs> you know it's a little like grunge rock you can't show that you're so committed you can't to show it. that you care and you are you care well you know it's funny the very first time i did largo uh, which was you know the premier alt place back in the day i showed up and i cared yeah and i blew the roof off the place huh. and everybody that didn't know because that audience didn't know me yet uh, you know some of the guys on the show knew me but everybody's like who the hell is this guy you know, I, I forget what I told. I just told a story, a real life story, which is what people are like. But you got big laughs. Like, well, I had punchlines along the way. I know how to tell that story mm-hmm. without fumbling around. But it's easy to fall into that, what I call that alternative stutter step of talking, where you're kind of like, and then so like I'm at the store and like this effing guy, and then he's got this effing thing, and then and then and so okay. You know, like, there's a lot of that in alt comedy, which is like, just tell your story, yeah. dude. And the segues are, so what else? <laughs> well, let me take a look. And then, you know, Janine brought the notes up. And I, I never cared about notes, but, you know, uh, you know your, your lay comic likes to get mad at that guy. But I think people started doing an impression of alt comedy. You know, people saw Janine or Dana or Greg Barrett or Paul F. Tompkins or Patton Oswalt. And they're like, uh, well, I, that's what I do. I just kind of talk, too. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those guys are all they're ge- the best. Those the guys, best. those are geniuses. geniuses. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's talk about race to escape. Yeah, please. This so is my publicist si- doesn't get upset in the other room. <laughs> this is on the Science Channel. Yes. Why? <laughs> Why on the Science Channel? You know, because it's a great show and it's done with class. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, a guy by the name of Riaz Patel created the show, 
And before the, kind of before this escape room fad took off. Six total strangers are being locked up right now. Two teams of three competitors trapped in identical rooms. Look in clue drawer, drawer, in the drawer, in the drawer, Paul, in the drawer, in the drawer. There you go. Talk it out, you guys. Duct tape. Green duct tape. Okay, green duct tape. Also, we're still locked down. For their second clue, the red team has received a roll of green duct tape. And, well, that's it. We need green duct tape. Is something torn? Is something ripped? Look, undo the green duct tape. Is there a clue on the inside? Is there a clue on the green duct tape? We're still locked up, dude. Yeah, I feel like we should. Yeah, this is a brand new roll. So this is this is why I'm laughing. This is it. I, I saw the pilot episode. It's engaging. But let me uh, let me lay a couple classic game show premises on you. Wheel of Fortune. It's Hangman with a wheel. Jeopardy. It's trivia, but in re- reverse. Okay. Your show. Wow. I, I don't have a minute and a half to. You don't have it. <laughs> your your show is like the wire of uh-huh. of game That's shows. That's very. That's or very it's like, nice. It's like checking in on season three of Game of Thrones without watching the first. Well, two. you know what's interesting? It's about challenging. That? Is it's what I'm challenging, saying. and you have to invest in it. And what's great about it too, though, my I have a son who's seven, loves it. Yeah, loves figuring out the challenges, loves playing along. And then it's just, it's fun to watch. Well, I think it's a good show for 2015. I think it's a good show for niche media for, we're not trying to appeal to everyone, but we're going to have a small select yes. group of fans. Which we'll is why find I, our audience on I Science love that Channel. it's on Science Channel. And, yeah, and find yeah. it, and, I, and again, I am proud to be hosting this show. And I mean that, you know, and that's not even the BS that I would say if I was not hosting this. What's the code you use when you're not proud? What do you Straight. say? Okay, okay. Straight. Okay. You don't use the word proud. Just yeah. hope people tune. Yeah. I hope they tune in. You know, it's all that nonsense. But uh, <laughs> this one, I'm very, I'm sincere. And again, I'm I, the fact that I can sit and watch it with my son. You know, speaks volumes. Never not funny is the podcast. Race to Escape is the new show on the Science Channel. Jimmy Pardo was the guy talking to me. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Jeez, my, what a joy this was. Thank you. So up until now, the phrase has been with the flick of a wrist, flick of a wrist. But you know the phrase is going to soon become with the click of a mouse, because that is the definition of convenience. And when something is inconvenient, when you can't do it with a mouse, you get a little bit upset. But what about when you can't do something with a mouse, when they're denying you the mouse click ability, when they shouldn't be? Enter stamps.com. You get your mailing and shipping done with the flick of a wrist, the click of a mouse, the whip, two shakes of a lamb's tail. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Talk about convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer, and then you just hand it to the mailman or drop it in the mailbox or a little of both, depending on the size of the package. You never have to go to the post office again. Right now, you just use the promo code, the gist, for a special offer, a four-week trial, and then you get a $110 bonus offer. That includes a free digital scale. You get to try a scale for four weeks. It's good to try a scale for four weeks. Maybe it will change, especially if you're in a business that has to do a lot of shipping. The scale will calculate exact postage for your letters, for your packages. They'll also throw in $55 in free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That is my code to qualify for the special offer. It, of course, also helps the gist. If you have an Anyway, been curious, maybe I really need to get off my butt and do it. Do it. If you're a small business owner, do it. Stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel. 
These are your ads on drugs. Any questions? I offer, in service to you, my public, this public service announcement. Public service announcements usually are none of those things. Announcements? They're print ads or commercials. Announcements? What is this? A Texaco Star Theater with a word for Chesterfields? Service? I literally can't remember one that told me to do something I didn't know to do. Public? I don't know. How many people in the public need to be told not to step in the empty space between the trade and the platform? Thanks. Do you need to be told not to smoke in bed? Noted. Don't litter. Or at least hold on to your styrofoam cup of Sanka until the lacrimose tribal chief in full regalia clears the area. So I was in Chicago the other day, and there were these billboards around town and black and white pictures of kids, and the words were, kids can't fly. And at first, I thought the billboards were about, like, some teaching educational enrichment programs or learning centers, you know. Without our help, children won't soar to the heights of their full potential. But no, they were about falling out of windows. It was reminding parents that if your kid falls out of a window, he will be doomed by aerodynamics. This is clearly pitched to an audience that I am not a part of. It reminded me actually of those Chick-fil-A ads, eat more chicken, and the more is spelled wrong or backwards. But of course, in those ads, the joke was, it was the cows urging the public to try more poultry, which explains the bad and backwards spelling, you know, hooves. Interestingly, I found out that Kids Don't Fly did not start out in Chicago. Like right now, it's in Australia and in Massachusetts and a lot of other places. And according to the World Health Organization, Children Can Fly was a program developed by New York City's Department of Health in the 70s to counter the high rates of death and injury among children following falls from windows. A significant reduction in the incidence of falls was recorded, particularly in the Bronx, where the number of falls declined by 50%. So you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. I do know the research shows you need to be blunt in these kinds of ads. You can't be subtle in order to get PSAs to work. You also can't be funny. That doesn't work, apparently. This is all why the CDC is playing ads like these all over the country. My name is Amanda, and I smoked while I was pregnant. My baby was born two months early and weighed only three pounds. This is the view I had of her in the NICU. My tip to you is. I want to pause the ad to describe the next shot. The POV is from inside the incubator, and Amanda opens the little door, and with her eyes filling with tears, she's not an actress, by the way, she delivers this next line. Speak into the opening so your baby can hear you better. It is heartbreaking, it is stark, and it's also entirely unconfirmable. Amanda's real. She's Amanda Brendan from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Also, smoking during pregnancy is real and terrible. It increases the chances of premature birth. Smokers' babies weigh less than non-smokers' babies. It increases the odds of more than a dozen different types of birth defects, from heart defects to clubfoot. But the possibility of linking any one individual premature birth to this behavior as apart from a constellation of behaviors and biology and luck, that is actually nearly impossible. So we don't really know for sure if, say, Amanda had kicked the habit before conceiving, would she have a baby that was born healthy or born to term? We can't say that. 
But the PSA, in fact, this whole new strain of very blunt PSAs are working, the CDC says. And I also think that every decent person would ask, all right, maybe you can't link one baby to one particular set of behaviors, even if it's true overall. But look at the results. If it convinces people to give up smoking, isn't that a good thing? Well, I would say this. I question the efficacy, the real efficacy of that kids or children's don't fly ads. Yes, the statistic said that falls decreased by 50%. But that was part, the ads were part of an overall program. And one big part of the program was that there was a law mandating bars in the windows of apartments that was passed at that time. So I'm going to say that had a lot bigger effect on children falling from windows. But I do understand that if you want to make an argument, it helps to tell a story. And arguments land better. They embed themselves in the psyche more when there's a clear narrative and when there's an identifiable cause and effect. So I will not object to the Amanda ad too much. I won't object too much to a smoker named Sean who had a tracheotomy. He starred in this series of ads called Tips from a Smoker. When you have a hole in your neck, don't face the shower head. Keep your stomach covered when you're outside. Be very careful shaving. Get used to eating only soft foods. And also these ads, these kind of PSAs, are different from regular ads. Regular ads are trying to entice potential customers. They're trying to get people to adopt a behavior, namely buy this thing. The smoking ads that we heard and kids don't fly, they're trying to prevent the behavior, just like don't drink and drive, don't strike your child. And it is harder to stop an ingrained behavior. A lot of consumer ads are pitched at giving into an indulgence. These ads are more like making a hard choice. But the biggest difference, and especially the anti-smoking ones, that they're intended to cause discomfort. And that's not what usually happens with advertising. Advertising wants to create a pleasant space where suggestibility is high. That's why so many ads rely on humor. Oh, yeah, I'll buy a Mentos. So showing premature babies or people who've had their jaws removed or emphysema patients is just different from the type of thing we see, but more importantly, the type of feeling we get from most ads. The CDC's director of Office on Smoking and Health told the New York Times that smokers were, quote, less motivated by the fear of dying than the fear of suffering, of disability, of disfigurement, and of being a burden to those around them. Clean out your speech valve twice a day. Will disfigurement or disability probably happen to you if you smoke? No. Statistically speaking, bad things will happen, but probably not those things. But since we're talking about the highly illogical decision to start smoking in the first place, I suppose that we can fight fire with fire, as it were. This has been a public service announcement. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi likely is the only sister of an American Ninja Warrior contestant to ever edit the gist. Joel Meyer is likely the only guy ever born in a car to be a staff member of the gist. Oh, wait, no, I'm told I'm wrong. Okay, he's the only managing producer of the gist who was born on this day 39 years ago. Happy birthday, Joel. Andy Bowers is likely the most experienced producer of Prairie Home Companion without Garrison Keillor to also be executive producer of this enterprise. The gist, likely the highest ranked podcast in iTunes to both regularly bestow a Lopstar of the Antan Twig Award and to have been a New York Times crossword puzzle clue. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. 
Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit SI.com slash podcasts for more info.